But Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Well, if you have your bulletin, you can take your memory verse card out right now. This is a, a really good one. And just put that in your pocket right now, or your wallet, purse, wherever. Uh, and uh, memorize that. Think about it this week. Meditate on what does it mean when Jesus talks about being the way, the truth, which is what we're going to talk about today, and the life. And all the implications of that is that we get to go to the Father. No one comes to the Father except for him. The implications of that in our life and our world are amazing. So think about that this week. Good stuff. All right. Now, we are talking about Christianity today, our faith, true, real, good. That's our series. And we're going to be answering the question today, how do we know that our faith is true? And that's really one of the biggest questions that we will find about uh, Christianity. Uh, you go on to most blogs uh, on the Internet that have to do anything with, with faith. It doesn't even have to be like Christianity or anything. It could just be about anything that faith has brought up. And, and you scroll down into the, the comment section below, and guaranteed somebody is going to call our faith a fairy tale, right? They could be talking about churros, right? And then somebody says, oh, the churro, it was a religious experience. And based upon that, somebody's going to call our faith a fairy tale, right? Because they say, it's not true. But the fact of the matter is, it is true. But how do we know that, right? We're not just left with this blind acceptance. Uh, most religions start with a trust me. Okay? Uh, Islam. Guy walks into a cave, says, I talked to an angel, trust me. I levitated all the way from where I was to Mecca. Did anybody see you? No, trust me. Okay? You have Mormonism. I talked to an angel that gave me golden or glasses to read a golden book that nobody can see, except for me, and I and I translated them Trust me. Well, where's the book? No, no, you can't see it. You just have to trust me. Or, or Eastern religion. Some guy says, I have been enlightened. Right? I, I know now more than you do about how to be enlightened. Well, how do, you, how do we know that? Well, just trust me. Well, what's the evidence? Has anybody ever heard the voice of Buddha come down to them like Obi-Wan Kenobi? No! It's a trust. It's all blind faith, except God didn't give us blind faith. And there's nothing wrong with faith. Right? All of you today exist in a world where faith is a necessity. Right? We couldn't do anything without faith. When you go and fill up your car with gasoline, do you go and chemically test what comes out of that pump is really gasoline? Right? Are you testing the number of octanes when it says it's 87 or whatever, what you get? Are you testing that and saying, nope, this really is? No. If you, by faith, you accept that what you're pumping into your car isn't like rocket fuel or something, right? You say, okay, I, is it reasonable to trust that? Of course. You walked into this building this morning trusting that this floor was going to hold you or that the seats were going to hold you. You didn't test the, the capacity of the seats before you sat down. You just sat by faith, trusting that it would do it. Was that blind faith? Not at all. You see, like with the gasoline, the pump, right? There's, there's regulators. There were things that, that test those things. And, and they say, we have the science. If you want to look at it, you can. We'll show you. And they have a history of telling the truth about what's coming out of the pumps, right? It's in their best interest, so we pump our gas. We want to test it. These chairs... It makes sense that most chairs that you've been around in your life hold people's body weight, right? A 
And you've been in this building before. You probably didn't have to test it. So you could just trust it. If we don't have faith in life, there's a word that people will call us, and that's crazy. Right? If, if you had to test every single thing scientifically to verify that it is what it is, you wouldn't get anything done. Faith is a necessity, but faith can, can either be valid, it's valid if it's placed in the right things, it's invalid if it's placed in crazy things. For example, last night, uh, my son got to go spend the night at some friend's house, so I had a couple hours at home, and the last thing I wanted to do was use my brain. And so, that had been on all day, all week, so I turned on the TV, and there's this channel there called H2. I don't even know who developed that channel, but uh, they had some crazy things on there that people believe about all kinds of stuff. And, and so I was watching this, and it was very, very fascinating about how uh, the Mayans were really, if I would have known this, were aliens. Right? Now, they put their faith, these people really put their faith into that. But was it valid? Is it based upon reality? No. Well, the question we have to ask ourselves is, our faith valid? Is it based upon something that, that's real? Is it true? And I'll talk about today how we know that it is. Now, let's talk about this first, though. What is truth? Right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, before Pilate, Jesus talks to him about what is true, and Pilate says, what is truth? Well, you know what? There is an answer to that. We know what truth is. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. For example, reality is just what is. You don't have to recognize reality for it to exist. It just exists. It just is. Okay? So, in reality, this is a laser pen. Right? This laser pen could be buried in the Sahara Desert, and it would still be a laser pen. No one would ever have to know about it, and it would still exist as a laser pen. Right? And if somebody said, pulled that out, and said, oh, a laser pen, they would be saying corresponding to what they said was true to reality. And so what they were saying is true, it's bad. But if somebody pulled this out of the sand in the Sahara Desert, pulled it out and said, oh, it's a snake, right? Not corresponding to reality, because this is not a snake. It doesn't match the definition of it, doesn't correspond with what reality is. So truth is that which corresponds to what actually exists, what actually is. And we want to say, how do we know that our faith is true? How do we know that it actually corresponds to what really is? Well, there are three areas we're going to talk about today. Now, you can get your Ph.D. in this study. Right? You can Amy and I took two solid years of classes just on this one thing. Say, so how do we know it's true? And so you're not going to get all of that today. You're going to get 20 minutes. Okay. <laughs> but there's three areas. First, we're going to talk about philosophically. Philosophically has to do with the mind. How do we know something is rationally acceptable? There's two arguments I want to talk about today. The first one is, is cosmological proof. Cosmological proof has to do with the theory of origins. Okay, you ever seen um, that that scientist Neil uh, Grass, whatever how to say his name? He's real popular. This, uh, the the whole study of uh, uh, the cosmos, I think, is his thing. Yeah, brilliant guy. But he stumbles where he gets to the actual beginning. He's really he's got everything nailed down for like the trillionth of a second, right to the point of the Big Bang. And before that, he's like, I don't know. right? Well, cosmology is a study of how do things begin. Okay? And we look at that, and we say, okay, cosmology starts with, this is us, we exist now, but what came before us? How come we exist? Well, you say, well, Eric, you exist because you had parents, right? And then, how did my parents get here? Well, they had parents. And you keep going back far enough, and originally, you're going to have to go to say, who were the first parents? Where did, where did they come from? Right? 
it back into here. Well, it's not just people. It's everything. It's, it's the universe. It's matter itself. How did we get here? And some scientists bring it all the way back, and they say, well, uh, there, there had to be a point at which time began. How do we know that? Well, we'll talk about the next proof, but the things fall apart, right? The universe can't go on forever. It would have suffered heat death eventually. Right? We're talking about an eternal plane. Energy eventually will break down to its lowest form, which is heat. And if we were here eternally, all we would be is heat particles separated by heat. That's what we would be, heat death. What's going to happen in the universe if it was eternal? Since we are not there, we know that we haven't been here forever. Right? So we're on a ticking clock. We can see how fast we degrade. We know that we haven't degraded completely because we exist. So there had to be a point at which it began because here's the thing with eternity. Eternity doesn't have a beginning, does it? So infinity just goes on forever in full planes. And so if we exist, there had to be a point at which we began, which order actually started. Where was that? Well, secular scientists would say, well, it's a big bang. And then the question is, what happened before that? What caused that matter to bang? And we have theories as to say, well, it all kind of came back together in contradiction to every natural law. But we're going to explain it for a natural law, of course. But it all it expanded and then it comes back, maybe. That, that's the best explanation, but that's a lot of faith, doesn't it? It takes a ton of faith to say natural law causes things to happen in contradiction to natural laws of things that happen according to natural law. That's crazy. But that's, that's the best thing. But we say, as Christians, or just as, as thinking individuals, we say, wait a second, we exist... And we exist on this continuum of time, and everything has a beginning. And if everything has a beginning, it had to start somewhere. And if it starts somewhere, it has to start with something that doesn't have a beginning. That's the only rational explanation. Well, what's something that doesn't have a beginning that can start us? Well, I wonder. Well, you know, uh, this question plagued my mind as, as an eighth grader and a ninth grader. I was finding my faith. And I looked at all of the different possibilities. And I looked at different religions of the world. All of them. As many of the big ones. I figured if God or this, this thing had a beginning, then I probably wasn't the first one to discover it. So probably was well known. So I looked at the big religions. <laughs> and, the, and the larger religions, all of them kind of have this trust me, trust me, trust me, until I came down to Judaism actually has a God that is big enough and powerful enough that actually has a crazy quality called the eternal. Infinite in his being, he doesn't have a beginning. Which people don't create things we don't can't understand. Right? That's something that we just don't tend to do. And we can't comprehend the thought of somebody who exists that doesn't have a beginning. And yet, that's exactly who God says he is. He's a God that doesn't have a beginning. So the cosmological proof of God is that we need a being that could start us all. And in order for him to start us all, he had to to not have a beginning. Why does he have to not have a beginning? Because if he had a beginning, then we have to ask, where did he come from? So we have to have somebody that's eternal. A cosmological. The problem goes the other way as well. It, it goes like this. And this is a little bit more um, uh, philosophic, but I think it's pretty phenomenal. Everything that exists, that we see that exists, also exists in concept. Right? So take, for example, a triangle. Triangle is a shape that has the three straight lines connected by three angles, right? It's a closed shape. In concept, triangles existed way before the first triangle was ever written or known or drawn, right? 
It just exists out of concept. And yet, triangles also exist in the real world because when people draw it, all of a sudden they bring that concept into reality. Right? So everything that we see in reality conceptually can exist and does. Nothing that exists in reality is something that couldn't exist in concept. For example, this, this, this uh, stool right here, right? It, it, it both exists in reality, but also in concept. Like before the stool was, was built, it was possible that the stool could be built. You can't point to anything in this world or this cosmos that exists that conceptually can't exist. Does this make sense? Your brain broken yet? Okay. So our question is, how do these things then move from concept to reality? Something has to bring them from, from the possibility of existence to the actual existence. So like a triangle. Where does the triangle come from? Well, from the person who drew it. Or this stool. Where did the stool come from? Well, it came from the carpenter that put it together. Right? He took it from concept and put it in reality. Well, then we say, well, wait a second. The person that drew the triangle or the carpenter, they also exist. What brought them into existence from concept to reality? Or say, well, maybe their parents, right? Well, then we keep going back further, and eventually we have to have what brought the first parents into existence? What brought this universe from concept to actual reality? Because everything that we see had been brought into existence, right, from concept that actually exists by something else. So what brought the universe itself into existence to begin? Well, we know this. Um, if you if you gave me the plans and the wood and the hammer for this and said, I have a concept for a stool, Aaron, I want you to make it, it wouldn't become reality. Right? It would become a to-do list that would never happen. <laughs> but the reason it wouldn't happen is I don't have the capacity, I don't have the skill set in order to make a stool. Right? Don't, I, I might have the tools, I might have the materials, but I just I can't make it happen. Right? If, if you tell somebody who is completely paralyzed to make a triangle, they might have the idea in their head, but they can't bring it to reality because they don't have the ability to do so. So everything that does exist not only exists from concept to reality, but it's brought from concept to reality by an individual or a power that has the ability to make it happen. Does this make sense? What has the capacity to bring everything into existence? Well, it can't be something from this universe, right? Because we're talking about how the universe itself comes into existence. It's got to be something outside of nature. Nature can't explain nature. It's got to have a beginning. It's got to have something that brought nature from concept into reality itself. So if nature can't do it, right, can you bring yourself into existence? No. Can triangle bring itself into existence? No. Neither can nature or the universe bring itself into existence. It's got to be something outside of nature, or what we call supernatural, right? Above it, beyond it, to bring it to existence. But it doesn't just have to be supernatural. It has to have the capacity, the creative ability to bring something, the intelligence and the ability to bring it to reality. Well, who can do that? Again, I look at all the religions, and they have some really funny ideas about how things began. In fact, most of them don't even touch the idea of how things came into existence. They all start with things kind of existed. And then, it, and then there were crazy stories about how we came into existence from the things that previously existed. You know, there was one God and all of, it's, it's the Jewish God that we believe as Christians, a continuation, that is by nature creative, brings things out of nothing. He speaks, it becomes. It's phenomenal, but it's a necessity. 
So we have this, this cosmological proof of God. It's not the only one. There's lots of philosophical proof of God. We'll talk about one more. This one is the teleological proof of God. And this is the idea of design. Okay? Um, pocket watch. It's, it's, a, it's a fine piece of engineering. Right? And you look at there, look at all those little gears and things. That have, everything's got to work together in order for that watch system to come to place. So if you are walking along a trail in a national park and you come across a watch, you don't think, what a phenomenal, just uh, uh, think of nature that just, just happens. I'm going to go out and pick some watches today. Right? But the, when you see order, you know that it has a designer. Every time you see anything that has order. So if you come over to my house and have dinner sometime, right? You're going to see that the meal was cooked and there was order to it. There's certain herbs and spices, everything put together just so. It didn't just happen. It wasn't like the Swedish chef walking through my kitchen like, birdie, 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 and everything all of a sudden, boom, right? It happened because there was, there, was, there was a design to it. Those chairs you sit on, somebody had to put a plan together and somebody had to follow the plan to make it happen. It wasn't like you just walked into a grave or to a... a, 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 a trash place, and then all of a sudden one blew through, and all of a sudden chairs popped up. You know, even as simple design as those, right? Every time we see design, every time we see design, we know it has to have a designer. Well, how much so then, like, the human body? The you know, watch has a system, right? One system that keeps time. You know, the human body has got all these systems. You've got a skeletal system, digestive system, endocrine system, muscular system, respiratory system. I will tell you, the human body is really complex. If any one of those systems is beyond the capacity of humanity to create, right? These are, are intricate systems that have so many little details, little working parts that were way more complex than a pocket watch. I mean, infinitely, but exponentially more complex than a pocket watch. Even the most simple of organisms, like the leaf on a tree. Look at a leaf on a tree. We've been trying to copy that, that's how that, what happens in a leaf for, for a long time. Because we've got free energy from the sun. We can't do it yet because it's so darn complex. When we look at the design of everything around us and we say, wow, there is so much design. It needs a designer. I mean, it's absolutely insane to say a pocket watch is it's crazy to think a pocket watch could just happen. That a, that a tornado could blow through a city and pick up all the right kind of parts and put together a pocket watch, even over a trillion years. I mean, that just never would happen. But to say, well, that could happen, but something that's exponentially more complex could just happen that way. There is design everywhere, but in the littlest things, but also to the largest things. Not just on the microcellular level, but on, on, on the, the, the colossal scale of how the universe itself is put together. How our solar system is designed. Even if, like, where the moon is and the size of the moon and where it is and how it rotates and the speeds it moves in relation to the rotation of the Earth, if those things weren't just so, if the solar system didn't work as it was supposed to, we would be dead. There are so many systems, large and small, that exist. We see design everywhere we look. And that's what the psalmist was talking about when he says this in Psalm 19, 1 through 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And you see, in this world, we look at 
And it just makes sense. Everywhere we see design, there needs to be a designer. Everywhere we see existence, there needs to be someone who brings it into existence. And we see both, existence and design. God is, is necessary. Well, it's not just philosophically true, our faith. We want to say, hey, trust me, it's philosophically true. Science itself talks about it. This was the thing that, that started my journey that brought me towards Jesus with this, the entropy. And, and we're going to talk about the second law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics, uh, it's, it, it has to do that, uh, that energy can't create itself and it can't disappear. Like, energy exists. Right? So if you have kinetic energy, you raise your hand. So now I'm taking energy from my muscles. And now my hand is raised. Now I've got kinetic possibility, potential energy, and I can smack it, right? And if I smacked you, like, upside the head, boom, that kinetic energy didn't disappear. It, it gets absorbed into your head somewhere, and it reverberates, and then, it, you know, you have that energy doesn't disappear. It goes somewhere, right? And so we live in a closed system where energy just exists. And that's natural law. It's like gravity, natural law, right? Third law of thermodynamics says that we can't reach absolute zero. Why something can't have no energy. Right? Energy can't just completely dissipate. Second law of thermodynamics is this. That, uh, it says this, that, that the energy that we have, the order that we have in energy, will never increase. So if you have something that is orderly, and, and you go over time, that energy will always dissipate. It doesn't, doesn't attract, it dissipates. So another way of saying that is entropy, which is just uh, chaos, randomness, increases over time. So, for example, what we'll have here is we have something that is very um, orderly, a star. star, I mean, if you've ever tried to draw a perfect star, that's a lot of math and stuff into that, right? There's a lot of orders. And stars just don't happen. It's not like you're walking through nature and you'll ever see a perfect five-point star, right? It just won't happen. And you have this perfect star, but then what happens over time with entropy is things fall apart. And as it falls apart, what do you have? Well, now the star is a little less perfect. And you go over time, and then more things fall apart, and then what, what are you left with? Something that's even more chaotic. That's the nature, and we, we see this everywhere. This is a natural law. This isn't a theory. It's a natural law, and it's proven by everything we do. You clean your house, and it's like this, okay? And, and you don't clean it again. You just, you just keep living. What happens is things fall apart, because your house is chaotic, right? This is the way that it works. It works in all things that way, Right? And we know that it's, it, the stars themselves are falling apart. Our Earth, right? Things break apart. They break down. You build anything, eventually it's going to fall apart. What the amazing thing is, is that we are taught to a different idea. And when we talk about this natural law, we talk about is order plus time is chaos, right? But in naturalism, which says that we have to explain this universe only by the natural laws of this universe. It's a closed system and it can only work. This is what we're taught in schools, and this is what started me in my journey of faith. If they say chaos plus time equals order. You see the difference? Natural law, naturalism. The naturalism, by how insane it is, it says that we're going to explain everything by natural law. But the very mechanism that they use to explain everything by natural law is itself a violation of natural law. You can't have chaos plus time equal order. It's like saying this, if I drop this pin a trillion times, eventually it's going to fly up or flop. The gravity won't work. Natural law for this time just won't work. You know, what they will tell you is they will say, well, technically, the second law of thermodynamics can be overdone. 
as long as there's more entropy somewhere in the system, then you can have, possibly, you can have order increase somewhere else. Right? Except we don't ever witness that ever happen. It's so impossible. I mean, the odds, the statistics against it, make that the potential for that happening even once beyond impossible. Impossibility, for statistically, is something that can happen less than one time and one time tenth to the 22nd power, which is a lot. But if something can't happen with that, it's completely impossible. The idea that you would have order come from chaos is, is like 1 times 10 to the 480th power. It's like, it's impossible. But then, to have that happen repeatedly in a chain event so you can have the complexity that we see in this world, the odds of that happening, just that, that you would have things stacked up into the order so is something insane, like 1 times 10 to like the 4,000th power. Right? So it's impossible to have the process work. It's impossible to even have the possibility for the process to work. And so we see here that the chaos over time may possibly be a possibility, but it's really not a possibility, it's impossibility, correct? So we have order, and we say, well, where does it come from? Because we do have order, right? We are complex beings in a complex world with complex thoughts. Where does this order come from, all of this order? Well, we do find time in, and we have places where chaos reigns, and then we end up with order in our world, right? Take, for example, this building. At, this, at one point, everything in this building was, was not at all what it was like. We had like the, the cinder block stuff. That was all just like dirt and rocks and stuff that were piled out somewhere underneath the, you know, the, the ground. The woods were like trees that were built, you know, growing somewhere. You know, this, uh, the, the wiring was was metal that was underneath the ground, all very chaotic, and eventually it was mined out, and eventually it becomes this building. We started with chaos, and now we have order. Where does that come from? How does that happen? Well, every time we see order in this world, every time we see chaos being interrupted, and we see order coming from it, there are two things that are necessary that always are there, every time. And science is about observation, correct? We have power and intelligence. When you take chaos and you apply power and intelligence, you can create order. Let me give you an example. This school, or this building, right? It was built by someone who had the intelligence enough to build the building. Right? If you put me in charge of building this building, it would not be. It would be chaotic. Okay? Well, I don't have the intelligence to build a building. Okay? But say you have the most brilliant architect in the world, designs the most perfect building, okay? But you take away all of his tools and you put them in a room that he can't talk to anybody and he can't share his plans with anybody. Can the building be built? No, he doesn't have the power, the ability to do it. Right? Or another great example is you go to an art museum. I love art museums. And you look on the wall of the art museum. And, and I, I don't, I'm not so much into the modern art because I don't understand it, but the classic art. And you see these masterpieces and they're just, they're so orderly. They took chaotic paint and they put it together and it's just beautiful. Right? How did that happen? Well, obviously that artist had the intelligence to know how to do it, had the skill, and had all the materials they needed to paint to make that happen. And they put those things together, and it was beautiful. Now, if you take one of my pictures, it would never make it into the art museum because I lack the intelligence to. You, know, you see my stick figures; they're pretty cool. <laughs> but, right? When you look at something in the art museum, you know something about the artist. You can look at the design that's there and tell, your, and tell something about who designed it. You can say, that artist clearly had enough skill 
with at least that skill. Because we can't create something that's beyond our capacity to understand, that, that exceeds our intelligence. But you take a, a kindergartner, and you look at their artwork, and you know that a kindergartner did, because that's the level of their intelligence. And you tell a kindergartner to paint a Rembrandt, and you're like, I can't do it. But you tell a Rembrandt to paint a kindergartner's thing, I'm pretty sure you could replicate it pretty good. Right? So the order of something can never exceed the intelligence of the person that designed it. And it can also never exceed the ability or the power of the one that designed it, correct? So like the person that built this building had the ability to build buildings, right? If you have somebody that lives, uh, I don't know, uh, in the middle of Africa and doesn't have any tools and, and doesn't have any money or anything like that, you tell them to build a building like this, can they do it? Even if they're the smartest person in the world? No, they can have the intelligence to do it, but if they don't have the ability to have the power to do it, can't happen. So anytime you look at something and you see that it's designed, you can tell something about the design. The person that made this iPad had a lot of intelligence and the ability to design it, put it together, uh, much more than the person that built this watch. Well, when we look at our world, how much design does our world have? Well, way more than a human capacity to understand. We know this. That's what science is about, is trying to figure out the world. We observe it. We're still learning how the clock ticks, much less how it was put together. The intelligence necessary to create the universe that we live in is far beyond human capacity. And so the intelligence necessary is beyond ours. Who's smarter than humans in our, in our known world that we can observe? Nobody. That's why naturalistic scientists say that there must be aliens out there that are smarter than us, seeding things. That's the legit saying. That big power and the capacity to do that. But you know what? We don't observe that. That takes a lot of faith to accept that. But we see that the order that we have does necessitate some being that is completely intelligent. I mean, far more intelligent than we are. And way more powerful than we are. So powerful it can create universes and galaxies and stars and cells. Of course, the only being that we can think of that has that kind of eternal capacity of intelligence is God. Science needs God. In fact, Romans 1, 19-20 says this about that. It says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, as people of this world, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, okay, that's his power, and his divine nature is intelligence, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We can dance around it all we want to, but eventually we have to recognize that this world it can't be a closed system. There has to be something. Nature can't explain the design of nature. There has to be something outside of nature that creates it, and that is something supernatural. We call it God. Now, last one. This is historically true. This is what ended my, my journey towards Christ. Right? I saw these things. How do I know that Christianity is Well, the resurrection is the only explanation of history. Okay? When we talk about reasonable faith, this is what we deal with. You can't test God in a, in a, uh, in a test tube, right? Anything that has to do with spirituality is, is something that's supernatural. It's therefore beyond nature, which is what the, the realm of science. Right? And so we have to say we have to use reason. And reason is how we can understand if our faith is reasonable or not. Here we say, what is reasonable faith? Reasonable faith is that which takes the least amount of faith to accept. Right? So, uh, reasonable faith say, Aaron is going to preach a sermon today, or Aaron is going to turn into a doc today. Okay? 
Um, you came this morning probably thinking I would preach a sermon. That turned into a duck. Why? Because there's a lot of evidence for it. It took less faith to accept that I would actually preach you this. Why you came? If you thought it turned into a duck, maybe more people would come. <laughs> that would have been unreasonable. There's no evidence that I would have done that. Right? So that which takes less faith to believe is what we should accept. That's reasonable. Well, it takes too much faith to believe some things that people think about Jesus' resurrection. First one, some people say Jesus didn't die. Is that a reasonable thing to believe? Right? So you say, well, the resurrection didn't happen to him, and Jesus didn't really die. He, he just swooned, which means he went to like a coma and then he woke up. Let's think about that for a second. Jesus was whipped, flogged to a point that most people would have died, went and was crucified so he couldn't breathe, but hung on the cross in a place where he would have, in a, in a, in a, uh, a position which would have asphyxiated him just by itself in a couple minutes, but he was there for a couple hours. And then a spear was jabbed up into his heart where blood and water flowed out. Well, as we know today, scientifically, it actually punctured his heart. It was the only way to get those kinds of that blood and water flowing at the same time. So he's asphyxiated, he has no blood, and he has a gaping hole in his heart and his lungs. Okay, And then people uh, that are executed, I think these uh, people that do kill people all the time, that know a dead body when they see one, and have a reason to make sure that he's dead, they say, he's dead, right? Then he's pulled down off the cross, wrapped up in, in burial things, so he's now smothered, has 70 pounds of spice, spices placed on his face and, and his chest. So, And then he's taken to a dark cave, and put in there where it's cold, right? And no water, nothing like that. And then they roll a stone in front of it, which is the exact same material as the walls around him. Now he's in perfect darkness in a cold place, wrapped there, and three days later, he didn't die, no breathing, anything like that, this whole process, he somehow wakes up, okay, he miraculously survives this, wakes up, takes the burial clothes off himself, in pitch darkness, on crucified hands and feet, with a hole in his heart, finds the door, rolls the door, not forward, which weighs a half a ton, and somehow with crucified hands, rolls this stone, Side. It takes four guys to move that stool just to roll it in from the side. One guy, like, if he just rolls it like this, oh, and is able to roll that stone out of the way, overcomes 12 guards, runs 12 miles, and then convinces everyone that he is actually raised again in the resurrected body. Now tell me, does that take more or less faith to accept than he raised from the dead? I, the fact that he... People say he didn't die. That's just, to me, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Plus, if he had done that, I mean, people should worship him. I mean, for crying out loud. That, <laughs> the dude was crazy. So, it, it, Jesus died. And most, almost everybody accepts the fact that he died. So then some people, even back in Jesus' day, they said, okay, well, the body was stolen. Okay? He actually died, but the disciples stole the body so they could have power. Let's look at that. Disciples' only mission, they were cowards. They didn't even show up, most of them, to the crucifixion. But those that did were way far back, except for John. Okay? Then, after he died, they were up in the upper room, scared, terrified of the people that killed Jesus. Right? Because they saw, they thought he was God. And what were they doing? They were wondering what they are going to do with the rest of their life. Like, how did we miss this? This was horrible. They had no motive in and of themselves. They didn't even go to the tomb they sent women to. Okay? They were that scared. And what? Uh, four days later, they're out talking about the fact that they saw Jesus boldly. And you say that they stole this body. What did they have to gain from it? 
Did the apostles die wealthy? No. Did they die famous? No. Did, did they die with, with all kinds of, 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 of ability, power, things like this? No. Their clinging to Jesus cost them their life in their family's life. They all watched their families be executed in horrible ways before they themselves were, were murdered. They were kicked out of their communities. They were poor. right? They were constantly under threat of being put to death. Why? Simply because they said, we saw Jesus raise again. We saw it with our eyes. We can't deny it. Just a few days after the, uh, Jesus comes and sends the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, we find the apostles preaching boldly to the very people who killed Jesus. And they said, you be quiet. Don't preach this. And, and the apostles said, how could we not? Are we supposed to obey you or obey God? And they got whipped, hard, flogged. And they leave praising God, saying, we're glad that we can suffer for this risen Savior because of this. They write books, which we have copies of now, New Testament, all of them say, we saw Jesus raised. And this is something else that they do in there. They write in there saying, listen, go to the tomb itself. You know this is not a story in secret. You can see he's not there. Why would they do that to people who could check it out if Jesus was in the tomb? But how would they die for a lie? All 12 of them? With nothing to gain? That takes a lot of faith to accept that 12 guys would do that with absolutely nothing to gain. His body couldn't have been stolen. How about this? Jesus was a hallucination. Some people say, okay, the apostles clearly didn't have the capacity well, to overcome the guards to steal the body, but then have no way of doing that. That doesn't explain their, their behavior afterwards. How about this? They say, okay, well, they just missed him so badly that they thought they saw him. Well, here's some crazy things about this. That hallucination, it ate with them. That's why they were so intent when he, Jesus showed up and he ate fish. That's why he ate the fish. Not because he was hungry, or maybe he was hungry. He ate the fish because they were all watching him intently to see, like, is he a ghost? Because ghosts don't eat. He ate fish. He cooked for them. He said to Thomas, touch my wounds, in a room full of a lot of people who also saw that. Tell me, what kind of hallucination shows up to everybody at once and does the same thing? And it wasn't just the 12 that saw it. There were lots of people that saw it. In fact, there was a point that Jesus showed up to 500 believers all at the same time and said the same thing, and they all heard the same thing. That would be a miraculous hallucination. It doesn't match. I mean, it, it, for me, it takes a whole lot more faith to accept that Jesus was a hallucination. The fact that he actually just was there. How about this? Jesus' resurrection was a man. If the apostles didn't really believe the resurrection, they just kind of spiritualized it. And then later on, Christians were dumb enough that we believed it. And then after time, it becomes legend, and legend becomes myth, and then all of a sudden now we believe this, that Jesus actually raised from the dead. But they, of course, believed it didn't happen. Let's talk about that. In history, we know that a myth takes two generations to, to take place. Okay? You have the first generation that knows that it's not true, and they can test it. So they, they, it's not a myth to them. To them, it's just a story. Okay? And then you have the second generation that grew up hearing that story from the people that came before them. and so, um, But they also know it's not true because they can ask those people, did it really happen? And the people say, no, it didn't happen. The third generation, down the line, just two generations removed, they don't have the ability or the capacity to go back and check. And by that point, then they can start believing the story and think, well, maybe it's true. That's how myths take place. It takes place two generations. 
Now, the resurrection of Jesus was preached as truth from day one. What was uh, 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 Peter's at Pentecost? His sermon was this. You killed Jesus, right? He came, God came, you killed him, you know that you killed him, and he rose, to the, rose from the grave, as you well know. Where was he saying that? In Jerusalem, where Jesus' body was supposed to be there, right where he was killed just a, a month and a half earlier? He's saying, you know that he died, and you know that he raised from the dead. And these are people who could go into the tomb. They were first-hand witnesses. And he says to them, he raised from the dead, therefore he is God. That was his evidence. It takes a lot of faith for me to accept that those people, 3,000, including priests, walked away from everything, lost their communities, went into persecution, all because of something they could have very easily took a stroll out to the cemetery and see the 12 guards standing out front. But the question, but even if it was just a myth, then why didn't the, uh, why didn't the, the Sanhedrin shut it down? If the apostles were saying this is true, why did the, apostles, the Sanhedrin just take Jesus' body out and create the room? And say, no, see, he's still dead. Because they had done that in the past with other people. It takes a whole lot of faith to accept that Jesus' his resurrection was just a myth. Because the apostles, they say, this is why. In fact, Apostle Paul says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, everything he preaches is useless. Everything. It's based upon the Christian faith. It's based upon the resurrection from day one. And so to say it was a myth on day one, that's, that goes against everything we know about human nature and, and history. It takes a lot of faith to accept that. So, Christianity, real true good. We talked about a couple things today. Christianity is proved true. By philosophy, by science, and by history. It's not a trust me story. It's a real deal. Jesus came. He really died. He really rose again. And there really is a way back to God because he is the truth. And he is the life. And that means he's also the way. It's an amazing thing. Well, I'm asking the worship team to come forward as we bring this time to a close. And as I do, why don't you take out your um, green parts? I will take mine out too. Say, what do I do with this, Aaron? Well, the first thing is to say this. Well, how about this? What about this week, memorizing John 14, 6? That Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except for me. This isn't a trust me story. This isn't a faith hope that it is. This is reasonable faith that is proven true by every area we can expect it to look at. But you know what? There's power in that verse. We live in a world that tells us that it's all a fairy tale by people who haven't studied it themselves. And to remember that Jesus truly is true. It's not that we're trying to persuade somebody into a, a crazy ideology or a set. We're trying to show them what, what corresponds to the reality of the world that they live in. And it's the reality of the world that you live into. And the fact that Jesus is that way. Maybe that's what you want to do this week. How about read Acts 1 through 7? Do this series where we go through the whole book of Acts. I broke it down into sections that make sense. Read Acts 1 through 7. Look at the reality of the resurrection. This was written by Luke who was a follower of Paul, right, who went to Jerusalem, it says, and did a, a really good investigative work for his own good as well as for Paul and said, did this really happen? These are eyewitness testimonies. So read the book of, of Acts. Read 1 through 7 and say, did it really happen? What, what were the first-hand accounts of the day? How about this? Pray for an opportunity to share the truth of Jesus. Maybe uh, you've already accepted this. You know it's true. But how do we share that truth in a world that seems so against it? Pray. 
Because Jesus really is the way, the truth, and life. He's also God. And he's that same God who can create he can create stuff out of nothing. And he's a God who loves this world. And Jesus, Jesus said he doesn't want anyone to perish. He loves the world. That's why God gave his son. You think that God who's so powerful to create you and this universe in a way of salvation is too weak to provide opportunity for you to talk about it? No. But we need to ask him. So maybe it's today is to pray for opportunity to say, God, help me share this truth. Give me your words and opportunity and courage to share the truth of Jesus in this world that I live in. Because that's what he's called us to do. So maybe that's what you do this week. But how about this? You attend these next two weeks as we talk not just about the truth of the gospel, but about other questions. Is it real? Does it actually change our lives? What evidence do we have of that? Or how about this? Is it good? Because there's a lot of criticism saying Christianity is a bad faith. That's a bad thing. It's against women. It's against equality. It's against all kinds of things. You say what? Is Christianity truly good? Or is it something that's worthwhile giving our lives to? That's what we talk about those next couple weeks. And maybe you say, you know what? I want to be here for these next couple weeks as we explore is our faith real truth. Is it good? Maybe there's something else the Holy Spirit is asking you to do. Write that down. Or maybe, maybe there's something else you want us to pray for. We pray to a real God, a true God. And I love to pray for this week. So if you have something you want to pray for, mark that down. In just a minute, I want you to drop those off in your offering basket along with your tithe and your offering. And uh, make that your commitment to God this week. All right, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are true. And you are necessary. And we love that. I thank you that we're not an accident. And it's just proven by reason and science and, and history itself that you really came, that we don't just have a blind faith, but a reasonable faith, a faith that causes us to look to you with assurance, to know that it's not just a hope for, but we know that you exist. Thank you. You didn't have to give us the evidence, but you did. You are reality. So, Father, I pray that you would become our reality, that you would help us to live for you, God, that you would, that you would take us in the chaos of our lives to restructure us into, into those representatives of, of your order, of your love, of your compassion and redemption. Father, that we could be agents of peace and love and goodness and of the good news of Jesus in this community. God, we ask for an opportunity as a church. Give us each one of us opportunity to share this wonderful truth that you love us and that you exist and that you came to save us and there's a way back to you. Father, give us the courage, Father, to, to represent you in those opportunities home. And Father, in all that we do, may we do it for your glory because you deserve it. And we pray this in Jesus.